Amen. You may be seated. What a great day to uh, be in worship. It's such a joy to be with all of you today. I just want to let you know, um, if you haven't been here or if you don't know, uh, children are welcome to go to our children's church anytime during the service now or uh, as we get going. They're also welcome to stay. So uh, however you want to do that, you're welcome to be uh, whatever works best for you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name's Joe, and I'm one of the other pastors here at Central City Church. And my prayer for you uh, is the same prayer for me, uh, and it's the prayer that I ha- hope have every week, is that we uh, today might experience uh, the risen Christ. Uh, we're going to open up the scriptures today, and we're going to look at quite a few passages that kind of tell us what the resurrection story is. But before we do that, um, i got to clear the air a little bit. Some things I've been uh, wrestling with this Easter. But before I do that, let me give you a little bit of context. I grew up in a family where we did not celebrate things like the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, or Santa Claus. I did. Now, some of you got this like horrid look on your face, but it's true. Severely deprived as a child. And so when it comes to those things, I tend to be just uh, a little cynical. And uh, I I do. And so I got some questions for the Easter Bunny this morning. Like, where does he get the eggs? Have you thought about this? Like, where are these eggs coming? Is he laying the eggs? Which, if that's the case, is he some sort of strange mixture between a rabbit and a platypus, marsupial or something? Or worse, and this is probably what's actually happening, he's taking the eggs from chickens? Is that what's happening here? Which is probably what's happening. And then i got to ask the question, which everyone's asking nowadays, what's the life of these chickens like? Are they in a factory? Caged? Do they, are they grass-fed? Are they cage-free? Where are these eggs coming from? And this is, this is probably what's actually happening with the Easter Bunny, uh, which means uh, chickens are to the Easter Bunny what elves are to Santa Claus. Overworked, underpaid. <laughs> you know, so this is just some of the things that I've been, I've been really wrestling with. Uh, and so I did some research, and uh, because I need to know where are these eggs coming from, what's going on with the Easter Bunny. This is, this is weird if you think about it. In fact, someone told me today, can you think of a stranger tradition that's less, you know, than the Easter Bunny? It's such a weird thing. So I, I did some research, and I've got some good news for you all. Are you ready? The Easter Bunny and Easter eggs are not directly tied to Christianity. I don't know if you knew that. Isn't that good news? In fact, uh, when you think about it, Christianity is kind of weird. Uh, Christianity is weird if you're new to the faith or if you're coming back for the first time. It's a weird thing. We, like, we talk about drinking the blood of our Savior and eating the flesh of our Savior, and we give people baths up front. Very strange stuff. And if you're a visitor here today, that's another sermon, so I'll get, we're not going to deal with those things. But a very strange stuff. But when it comes to Easter, uh, we talk about how Jesus died and rose again. Now, that's radical, but it's understandable. The Easter bunny, though, with eggs. Like, for the first time, popular culture is actually stranger than Christianity. And, and that's good, good news. So I actually, I actually did, I, I seriously did some research, and, uh, and, and, and so let me tell you where this comes from. This is actually relevant. Uh, bunny and eggs are a symbol of fertility. Uh, they're a symbol of new life. They're a symbol of birth. Uh, They have been a symbol for new life and birth and fertility for a very long time. So they're associated in a lot of cultures, especially cultures that have four seasons, to the celebration of spring. See, you have winter, and in winter, everything gets cold and frozen. It's dark and depressing. We know what that's like. We just live through it. But then spring comes, 
and with spring comes this new life. So I was thinking about this, and, and we really shouldn't give the Easter bunny a hard time because Easter bunnies, if nothing else, are cute. So here's a picture of a little Easter bunny. Very nice, right? It's great. But if this really is just meant to be this symbol of birth for this new life that comes at springtime, then there's lots of animals we could have settled on. Bunnies aren't the only thing that give birth to lots of litters. We could have ended up with an Easter cat. <laughs> just as easily. Or an Easter guinea pig. Or my favorite, the Easter mouse. Someone uh, saw this picture uh, at one time, and they're like, yeah, but that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. The mouse isn't big enough to carry the eggs. I'm just like, that is like the least of the problems in this picture than that. But, but all of these are meant to remind us that in times of spring, uh, in times that spring comes and that life can come after death, when everything seems to be dead, and we can barely survive the cold of winter, and the leaves have gone, and, and everything's frozen in time. Spring comes, and with it, and you feel, you feel that first warm spring air, which I was really hoping for this morning, but sun was out. And you're just like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. When spring comes, it's no surprise then that these symbols of new life and of springtime throughout a lot of different cultures in history would become associated with the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Because Easter is a story of a, a celebration that life can come after death, that, that that which is dead is now alive. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Thank you. If you're uh, uh, new to church, that's the traditional response. <laughs> and someone knew it. That's good. I wasn't sure. Other context, it would be like really loud. But I, wasn't, I was like, is anyone going to know? It says something about our community I'm thankful for. He is risen. Today, that's what I want to talk about. I want to focus on the resurrection. I want us to look at the resurrection with a fresh pair of eyes. So before we do that, uh, let's center ourselves and allow God to speak to us and shape us. God, we come before you and um, we ask that you would come, break into our hearts and our lives. We trust that um, you are able to do far more than we could ever think or imagine that you're able to speak to us and challenge us and awaken our hearts and our lives. We hope that today, right now, we might experience you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Now, before we jump into the story of the resurrection, I want to look at this passage in a letter uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Now, the church in Corinth had begun to spread this rumor that there was no life after death, that when you died, that was it, end of story. And this is a popular thought. This was a popular thought. This is still a popular thought. There might be some people who believe that even today. It's a simple belief. The belief is simply this, that you get, you get one life, one life. And after that, when it's over, it's over, done. We move on. There's nothing else. And they began to teach this to their community and to their church. And, and so what, what they meant was that there was no resurrection, because the resurrection is this belief that there is life after death, that, that when you die, you can come back again. And, and so they believed in Good Friday or the death of Christ. They believed that Jesus died for their sins. They just didn't believe Jesus rose again. And so good, they had Good Friday without Easter. Spring was never on the horizon. This life was winter and there was no hope after that. So Paul, trying to challenge them, spends this whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 trying to convince them otherwise. And you can read it for yourself, but I want to look at just this one verse. He says this, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching 
is useless, and so is your faith. I say that to you now with the same level of certainty in which Paul wrote it. If Christ has not been raised, my preaching is useless, and so is your faith, whatever amount of faith you come with. I'm going to focus on that word for just a second, the word useless. The Greek word here is kenos. It literally means it doesn't have anything, no content, no value, nothing to offer the world. It's pointless and void of meaning. It's empty. How many of you have uh, met a Christian or been in a church which seemed religious um, and it seemed nice, but ultimately you found it to be just empty or void or lacking any meaning? Paul's saying that without the resurrection, if that didn't happen, if that doesn't happen, then our entire religion is kenos, void, empty. Religious sounding, yeah, but not ultimately life-changing or helpful. Without Jesus' resurrection, all we have is religion, but no life. And And this makes sense because how can it be good news? We call it good news. It's the gospel. That's what good news means. How can it be good news if the Savior of the world dies? End of story. And that's just where the story ended. How can Jesus help us conquer death in all of its forms if he can't even conquer his own? So many times when I hear the gospel shared, maybe you've experienced this too, if if you were to summarize the Christian faith or someone outside the church said, what's the Christian faith? What's the message? Many people would point to the cross, right? That's the symbol we wear around our necks and our bracelets and you see in all the image. We look at the cross. Jesus died for our sins. But friends, that's not the whole story. God did not murder his son to save us. I want you to hear that because Christians get this wrong sometimes. And it's given people sometimes the wrong impression. God did not murder his son to save us. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, died and rose again so that when we die, because bad news for you, friends, is going to happen. <laughs> like it's just unavoidable. So when we die, we can raise, rise again. Because when you think about it in life, no matter what you're going through, I don't know what you're going through, but I know some people in our community are going through some really tough stuff. But no matter what you're going through, nothing can be worse than death if that's the end of the story. So Christ, he shared in our death so that we could share in his resurrection. So no matter what you're going through, it doesn't have to be the final word. You can experience something new. So here's the resurrection. It's the crux of Christianity. And because it's the crux, it's the heart of what it means to be a Christian, the way in which you respond to the resurrection might be the most important thing about you. So I want to stop and I want to pause and I want to ask yourselves, do you believe it? It's simple to say, he is risen. But do you believe it? If we're honest, I'm going to suggest it's the hardest thing the Christian message to believe. Which is no surprise to me that the bulk of the passages around the resurrection in the Gospels don't actually deal with the resurrection at all. I mean, Jesus died and he rose again. You can cover that very quickly. That's like a couple of words. But the bulk of the passage actually deal with how the various characters, from the women to the soldiers guarding to the tomb to the disciples, how they respond to the resurrection. And let me just say, none of them are simply saying, He is risen! He is risen indeed! Let's go eat some ham and have an Easter egg hunt. Mostly because they were Jewish and they didn't eat ham 
But, like it, it wasn't, but it wasn't as simple as that. That's not how they react. In fact, none of them respond this way. None of them even say the words, He is risen. None of the disciples or the women do anyways. It didn't show up on their Facebook feed. Their response is far more complex. The soldiers are terrified. The women are confused. The disciples won't believe it until they see it. There's a wide range of emotions from fear to confusion to doubts to disbelief to disregard to silence to sadness. And even when they finally get around to worshiping Jesus, it's this this worship that's filled with this indescribable awe and wonder and terror. So when you examine the resurrection and, and, and you simply write it off as he is risen, but you don't actually share in that fear, that confusion, or that disbelief, I'm forced to wonder, what are we missing here? Why is my difference, why is my experience of the resurrection different from the first disciples? So that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to look at the story, the accounts of the resurrection, but I want us all, to, as we read these, to focus on how do people respond? So I'm actually going to be pulling from all four of the Gospels. We, we have the story of life, the life of Jesus found in all four Gospels, and we're going to be pulling from all four, including Matthew 28. Uh, we'll put these up on the screen for you. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. So I'm going to be jumping between these rather quickly, so if you want to read them for yourself, I'm not going to give you any notice when I jump between them. So if you're following along, uh, it's not on the Bible app this week, and it's, uh, if you've got a paper version, it's going to be hard to follow along, but it will be on the screen. Um, but you can write these down, and you can read the story of the resurrection from each account yourself. So here we go. Matthew's going to get us started. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 says this. After the Sabbath... At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other women went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. So every single person so far in the story responds to the resurrection like this, in fear. And part of this is because that happens anytime God shows up. When God breaks into our world, one of the first things he almost always says is, fear not. Why does he say that? Because whoever's receiving him is like, freaking out, which if God just randomly showed up in your life unexpectedly and was standing in front of you, I would imagine you'd be a little scared too. Um, and so this is what they do. They, they, the guards and the women, they, they respond to, to, to fear. So we read on Mark 16, 6. It says, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So even after they're told what's going on, this, this, the Savior of the world has been born, reborn, brought back to life, they're still scared. Now, when you think of Easter, I think of like, he is risen, let's go have a party. But that's not what we see here in the actual account. They're scared, even to the point of being speechless. They had no intention of telling anyone about this for fear that they would think they're crazy. And so you have to wonder, what is it that they're so afraid of? Well, we get a picture of that in Matthew chapter 28, going back to verse 8. It says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. Okay? 
there was this fear. Their fear was this sort of strange cocktail of fear and joy, of wonder and terror. You know, sometimes, friends, we're afraid because things are just that bad. Have you ever been there? There's danger on the horizon. You're, you're afraid because you, you see bad things coming. But, you know, sometimes we're afraid because we've already been where bad things are, and there's good on the horizon, and we're afraid it could be true. Have you ever been there? Where you're like, this actually could get better, and I'm afraid to believe that because what if, it, what if I'm wrong? And we're afraid to even hope in something better because we're so used to losing. We're so used to living in that brokenness. And that's, what, that's, what they, that's why I see these characters. They want to believe he's alive, but they also don't want to, to believe it just because it's, it's just too good to be true. And to, to allow myself to hope in that, oh my gosh, what if it ends up not being true? Well, it would have been better if I had never hoped at all. These women had been on the most significant spiritual roller coaster of their lives. Their rabbi had been arrested, beaten, tortured, killed, and then two days later, against everything they knew to be true, he could be alive again? I can hear, you can hear this in their voice. This is too good to be true. I want to believe it, but I can't. I don't know if this is true. Is this true? I don't know. This is probably the most common reaction to the resurrection. Everyone seems to be holding on before they completely give in to the idea that Jesus is actually alive. So picking up back at verse 9, it says in Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew 29 says, Suddenly Jesus met them. If only we could understand the significance of that. Jesus met them. Showed up. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. He didn't get past hello, and they were on the ground worshiping him. Their fear and their joy and their hope and their confusion, they all culminate in this moment where Jesus is revealed before them and all of these emotions are transformed into worship. You know, sometimes we think of worship and giving thanks to God as something we do because things are going really well and we're like, oh God, I'm so thankful for the life that you've given me. But you know, true worship actually comes out from a place of deep confusion and pain and questions. And when you have all of this bent up, all of this stuff that you're like, I'm not sure what to do with. And then Jesus actually shows up. You find it being transformed into worship. So they counter Jesus. And Jesus tells them, verse 10, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they'll see me. So these women, uh, as many people are beginning to notice, I've noticed this on Facebook, these women become the, first, uh, the church's first preachers. First evangelists. First witnesses to the resurrected Jesus, they are told, they are commanded, they are commissioned, they are sent to go tell people that Jesus is alive, the good news. And he tells them to go to the disciples, which brings up another question that I want to spend some time with. The women become the first evangelists, and they have to go tell the disciples, so where in the world were the disciples at during this time? Well, that answer is actually funny. Um, John tells us in his gospel account, John 20, 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, on Sunday, uh, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, the men <clears throat> are in a room with double locks on the door, 
not going to walk out in the street for fear of being associated with Jesus because they had a price on their head. But the women, do you see where we're going with this? I like it. Yeah, all right. Can I get an amen from the women? First chance they get, they're at the tomb, the same tomb that guards are guarding, by the way. What are they going to do, convince them with their you know, charm to roll the stone back so they can get in care for you? They don't know, but they ain't missing an opportunity. First chance they get, they're at the tomb. And so they get the honor, no, the privilege of being the first evangelist and the first witnesses to Jesus' new life. And they get to tell the story. And so they do, Luke 24, 9. It says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the others. Now, this is the part that's really important. If you look at this, it wasn't just one or two of them. It was a large group of witnesses, a large group of women. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and others. So there was like this whole group of women, and with them, they told the disciples. But they did not, the disciples, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Jerks. It's like so stereotypical that I'm like uncomfortable reading it. Hashtag me too. It's like, it's easily the most embarrassing part of the resurrection story. They think the women are crazy. They write it off as silly talk. That's what the word means in the Greek, nonsense, silly talk. They write it off as a fairy tale, which is interesting because the disciples, the, 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 the leaders of the church, their first response to the resurrection is not doubt, it is disregard. They're probably thinking, oh, these women, that's just how they're dealing with the grief. You know, they don't know how to handle it, says the men who are locked up in the room. The, the women don't know how to handle it. So the, the disciples, they just disregard it entirely. And that's not so uncommon, is it? I think many in our world look at the story of the resurrection, they feel exactly the same way. There are many people, great people, even people of faith, I'll say, who look at the resurrection and they say, cute story, not buying it. Silly talk. Yeah, cute story. I can see its appeal, but obviously not true. This is just the way that the women and the disciples were dealing with the loss of their Savior. Disregard, just blowing it off, is often how we deal with things we can't control or understand. So we throw it away, we ignore it. And that's where many people are left. We read the story of the resurrection and we're like, yeah, that's, that's great, but how ridiculous can it get? We maybe celebrate it once a year because our, our parents make us, but we never really believe it. So, you know, friends, we can relate to Jesus' death. We've met people who've died. We can relate to Jesus' life. We've met people who lived. No one argues whether Jesus lived or died. I mean, historians will agree with that. We can, we can relate to Jesus' teaching and, and even to Jesus' suffering because we've suffered and we know people to, who have suffered, but, but, but we can accept so very easily the resurrection because we ha- I haven't seen that. If you feel that way, and disregard is the way you respond to the resurrection, then uh, you're not alone. It's the disciples' first response. And so my prayer for you, if that's your response, as is for me, as is I said at the beginning, is that we might meet the resurrected Jesus. And the disciples who built the church that we're still gathering in 2,000 years later, if their response was disregard, and so is yours, then... I'd say there's still hope, isn't there? So we read in John, it says this, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus shows up. Now, 
They didn't record it here, but I wonder if the women were in the room off to the corner saying, I told you so. Because this is the craziest part. Listen, listen to their response. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Because to them, it was more likely to have a ghost that looked like Jesus than for Jesus to have risen again. So Jesus says to them, he says, why are you troubled and why do you doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost has, does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they were still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. I love this. Jesus is like, okay, while well, you're like catching up to this whole resurrecting thing, because I see this is like, you're having a real hard time with that. I'm going to eat because this resurrection body is burning the calories. <laughs> and they didn't believe it. They couldn't really believe that he was in his, their midst physically, not some apparition, that this body could be brought back together and be made whole again, that they, they had seen maybe only from a distance what, what the Romans had done to his body. How could his body, who had been beaten and slain, now be made whole again? And yet he stood there alive and well, eating just to prove that he wasn't a ghost. But not every disciple was there. John 20 goes on and says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him. So the women told the disciples. They didn't believe. And then the disciples told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, people always give Thomas a hard time. You've probably even heard the phrase doubting Thomas. Have you heard this before, doubting Thomas? You refer to people who just don't have faith. Um, but you know what? When we read the resurrection story, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he doesn't do anything different from anyone else, does he? he? He's doing the same thing that everyone else did. Everyone struggled with the resurrection. So why do we give him such a hard time? My problem with Thomas isn't actually that he doubted. Um, they all doubted. We all doubt. My question for Thomas is different. My question for Thomas is, why wasn't he with the others? Where was he when everyone was gathered? I mean, it said the disciples were all together, but he wasn't with them, and he wasn't with the women. So where was he? Had he deserted the group? Was he hiding somewhere on his own? I don't know, but either way, he isn't there when Jesus shows up, and that's the only reason he is doubting. In fact, with the resurrection story, it's all about being in the right place at the right time. In fact, I would, I would go one step further. When encountering the resurrected Jesus, who I believe is still alive, it often is all about being in the right place at the right time. So the disciples, they weren't at the tomb, so they didn't believe the women. And Thomas wasn't with the disciples, so he didn't believe the disciples, so he doubted. But his doubt is different than the disregard that the disciples had. When the disciples heard the report from the women, they wrote it off as silly talk. Here, Thomas doesn't do that. He says, he says that I need uh, to see it to believe it, which means he, had, on some level, is entertaining the idea that it could be true. And that's the difference between doubt and disregard. Disregard looks at the resurrection and says, nah, not interested. Doubt looks at the resurrection and says, now that is very interesting. Maybe too good to be true, maybe impossible, but if it was true, it would change everything. And so I really should be sure about this. So I need some proof. Doubt means that you've brought into, uh, your, into it, bought into it enough 
to have room for faith. And so that's, that's what I love about Thomas, is, is how his doubt actually motivates him to act. John 20, 26, he says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. Now, just pause there real quick before we read the rest of the verse. They're in the house again. So I wanna, uh, Jesus rose on, on a Sunday, and then he met the disciples later that Sunday, in Sunday evening. And then the next week, they gather again on next Sunday. In fact, if you've ever wondered why Christians gather on Sunday instead of Saturday, because I don't know if you knew this, but Saturday is actually the Sabbath. That's the Jewish faith celebration on Sabbath. So you're like, why do we gather on Sunday? Sunday isn't the Sabbath. Well, we gather on Sunday because Jesus rose again on Sunday, and then he showed up amongst his disciples. And so the disciples, hoping that he'd show up again, meet the next Sunday. They're like, well, we're going to gather again. And guess what, friends? They have been gathering every Sunday ever since. You're a part of that now. Still gathering, still hoping that the resurrected Lord will show up in our midst in one way or another. So they met on Sunday once again. This becomes their habit. So a week later, his disciples were in the house again, but look what changed. And Thomas was with them. He wasn't going to miss the chance to see Jesus show up again. Think about this. He didn't believe. He wouldn't believe until he saw it for himself, but but he didn't leave the faith. His doubt actually improved his attendance. (laughs) He's not going to miss another chance to see Jesus show up. He's like, I'm wrestling with this. Uh, I'm not sure about it. So I've got to show up. I got to show up to worship. I got to show up to acts of service. I got to show up to, to a small group because it's in those places that we're most likely to experience the resurrected Christ. And he's like, I've got to be there in case he shows up again. And because Thomas showed up at the right place at the right time, Jesus showed up as well. Through the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. I wonder if there aren't some of us here today who hear those words of Jesus and they hit particularly close at home. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. I'm here, right here, right next to you, closer than you think. You can relax. Calm down. You're loved, and I'm never going to leave you. Do you hear Jesus saying that? If so, I wonder if your response might be a little bit like Thomas. Thomas said to him, verse 28, he just says, my Lord and my God. You see, when we really understand the resurrection story, we see that, there, uh, that more than anyone, it was Thomas who understood the significance of the resurrection. And I wonder if this isn't true for all the disciples. They doubted and were afraid and they were confused and they hesitated, not because they didn't want to believe, but because they knew the kind of commitment it would require of them if the rumor was true. If this was true, if there really was God come who loved, lived amongst us and, and, and died and then rose again to change the way we live our lives, if that really is true, then man, that's going to require everything about me. I'm going to have to call him Lord and God. My allegiance will have to be with him, plain and simple. So they wanted to make sure that it was for real. So they waited and they, they went to where Jesus was most likely to show up. So if you have your doubts and you're not sure where Jesus is in your life, if he's still alive, I encourage you to be just like the disciples and show up to the places that Jesus is most likely to show up. 
And while there are a lot of places that God meets us in, whether it's nature or work or creativity or museums, the most tangible places you can experience God, in my experience, have been gathering in worship, gathering in small groups, and serving the poor. Which is why those are the three things we do as a church. So if you're not sure, show up. Come with your questions and your doubts. They're welcome. But show up. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and uh, as they do, we're going to spend some time reflecting. I want to ask you I, want to, you, I want you to spend some time thinking about this. What is your response to the resurrection? How do you respond to the resurrection? Now, what I've noticed in churches is a lot of times they're only interested in your response if it's one of faith. You know, like, if, raise your hand if you've chosen to follow Jesus. Have you been in that, you know, close your eyes, bow your heads, raise your hand if you've chosen to follow Jesus. Or like, come forward if you want to accept Jesus. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not, that's not where I'm at. Um, I just want you to be honest. That's what I see in the story. Just be honest. Where are you at? So you, when you came in, you should have got an index card and you, and you got a pen, hopefully. I want you to spend some time in just a few moments before our closing song and think about how do you respond to the resurrection? If it's disregard or doubt, or if you say, yeah, I'm, I'm on board, God. I'll do whatever, whatever you call me to. Um, I got questions. I'm afraid. Whatever your response is, just I invite you to be honest, and I welcome it wherever you're at. So we're going to do that. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to just reflect. And even if it's just one word or a short phrase, I'm going to ask you to write down where are you at with the resurrection? How do you respond to that? And then um, after the closing song, we'll have a couple more announcements, but we're going to take this cross and we're going to take it out towards the exit. I'm going to invite you to take the index card and uh, there will be a little push pins and there's a cork board on the cross. I'm going to invite you, whatever the response is, to say, hey God, this is where I'm at. These are the questions I've got, this is the doubts, or I'm, I'm on board, I'm here, whatever, wherever you're at in the whole spectrum of the faith, I'm going to invite you to pin it to the cross as a way of saying, hey God, here's, here's where you're at.